Hello and welcome to Automators, the podcast about grabbing your tech and encouraging it to do your bidding for you. My name is Rosemary Orchard and I'm joined as always by my pal, David Sparks. Hey, David, how are you? I am great, Rose. Uh, super happy to be here talking automation with you. Uh, I, I got my new Vision Pro over the weekend. Oh, fancy. Yeah, yeah. I, I need time, but we're going to do a show on automating with the Vision Pro. And uh, so that that's coming up. But the uh, in the meantime, we wanted to do a check-in with HomeKit. And one of my favorite people to talk about HomeKit with is Robert Spivak. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Robert, you and I have known each other, what, 10 years now? I, I, I think the first time I met you was during WWDC or Apple Macworld somewhere. And uh, you walked up to me and we hit it off. Robert is a consultant who sets up um, home kit and home automation, uh, sometimes for very fancy people and, uh, really knows this business inside out. And I feel like having the pro in once in a while, just to talk about the state of home automation, what's working, what's not, and, uh, how we as automators can take better use of it is a, is a real good interview once in a while. Thanks Robert for coming in. Oh, absolutely. I've dabbled in home automation from the days when I was just experimenting at home to uh, working as a professional integrator. And also I do a lot of educational work now, consulting with clients, helping them understand what to do with their systems. You you go back to like X10 days of memory serves. You've been doing this for a long time. Yes, way back to X10, Insteon, all the, the old stuff. And went through quite a bit. I've worked with some very large systems and really settled on the middle what we call, or I call the do it for me segment, where a lot of folks want to do some of the work themselves or a lot of it. And I just guide them and help them with as little or as much help as they want. Yeah. And we're going to put Robert's contact in the show. If you would like Robert's help, uh, you know, you can reach out to him and see if you can figure that out. But, but uh, Robert's going to help us all today. uh, Just kind of updating us with the home automation. There's a lot to cover. But the first thing I would like to get into is just kind of the overall philosophy of setting up home automation and and doing it right. I think a lot of us kind of stumble into this. We're like, well, I'll get a light switch and see how it goes. Um, But you you make the argument that you could bring a little bit more intention uh, when you're setting this up, right? Yes. If you want to avoid tearing your hair out and going crazy with all the challenges, If you approach it a little more professionally, even as you would work projects in your own normal professional life, I think it can really help. For example, I I really think if you set an objective of what you're trying to do, what you wanted to accomplish, it makes it a lot easier to look at products and look at devices and decide what you want or what you don't want by having criteria to compare them against. That makes a lot of sense. You know, what I like to do is find the easy ways to eliminate things. If I'm looking at four or five different products or 10 different products, I look for the quick ways to knock them off the list and get it down to two or three. So if you if you decide what you really want it to do, and by that, not technically, but from a final result, do you want your lights to be automatically turned on or off? Do you want things to happen on their own? Do you want comfort? Do you want entertainment? If you start with what you really want, and the best way to do that is to ask the people you live with, because they're also part of the solution. 
Yes. Yeah. I think this is something that is really important to remember whenever you are looking into the world of home automation, whether you are fully entrenched in it or if you're just sort of thinking about dipping your toe in the water, you know, how do other people interact with your home? And it's not necessarily even just the people you live with. Obviously, they are super important, but visitors and guests to your home, um, you know, people who have to come in maybe, and I had to have my shower replaced uh, a while ago um, because uh, it broke. And um, I had to explain to the plumber uh, because he got a bit confused because he walked into the bathroom and the light turned on. He said, wait, how did that happen? And I said, well, it's it's a smart light. It knows if somebody's in the bathroom and turns the light on and keeps the light on. And uh, he was a bit confused by that. But remembering how other people interact with things is, is I find, really useful as a, a way to get started with uh, a lot of these home automation things. Yeah, I, I, that's, you know, and I'm probably beating a dead horse, but if you have loved ones in your house and you start changing the way the light switches work, that's a recipe to get yourself in a lot of trouble. One of the things I like to recommend is to think of two classes of users, yourself and everybody else. And by that, for example, you could do a lot of things where devices now have single tap, double tap, triple tap, 16 buttons, many variations. What I like to do is make sure the simple, obvious things are available for everyone. So if you go to a light switch, if you press, it goes on. If you press, it goes off. But you can put the double taps and the triple taps and the interesting things you want to do and hide them and expect they'll be used mainly by yourself. But don't put critical functions as complicated sequences that others have to learn and remember. Yeah, that that is the thing. You know, things have to be intuitive when you want to interact with them, don't they? If you, uh, you know, press the button that's on the wall that you would expect to be the light switch, then you would expect the light to come on. So if it just doesn't do anything, that's going to be really confusing. If you go to press it and there's tape over it, well, I have encountered people, and I'm, I'm not kidding, who will peel the tape off to press uh, the button um, and then get very confused that the light still doesn't come on because mm, the tape should have been a clue. But, you know, people will persist on doing the thing that is most logical to them. But at the same time, home automation can be a great way of making something that currently doesn't seem like it works well in your home work better. I know that with smart lights, I've been able to put buttons in places where it wouldn't be easy or possible to put a light switch necessarily because like it's like a little shelf that's next to my sofa but I can put a light switch on the shelf next to my sofa so that I can just press the button while I'm watching tv and it will toggle the lights um and of course I've got my phone and things but you know my phone might be on charge across the room or in another room so I've been able to add an extended you know functionality by adding smart options as well I actually like the idea of hidden UI in home automation. I never really thought about it that way, but the way you explain it is like, yeah, you can add cool home automation and just make sure that at the basic level, it doesn't change anything for the non nerds in your house, but then, you know, add the additional levels to it. Like a, an example that comes to my mind is, is the buttons. Like I have a, a button next to my side table. And if I press it, Twice the reading light comes on. If I hold it down, all the lights go off. But but my wife just knows if she presses that button, it turns the lights on in the room. And she has no idea about the additional functions. And if I told her about it, she'd look at me like I'm crazy. But uh, that's okay because she'll never know about it or try. And you can really take that to many different levels. One of the things 
folks love are the LED light strips, the colored strips or the mm -hmm. color tunable strips. And when you start adding those, you don't have physical switches on the wall because you're putting them under cabinets, on top of cabinets, behind devices. So one of the things I like to do is tie them into automations in a way that if someone comes into the room and they press off on a normal light, they're expecting to shut down the whole room. I also make sure it shuts off all those ad additional display mm -hmm. lights or other lights. So they don't have to go, how do I turn that off? Where is the control for that? They don't have mm. to pull out their phone or watch or learn something. They have a default mode of at least shutting everything off or turning everything on altogether. Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense as well, because a lot of the time when you're dealing with, say, smart lighting, you actually want a way to control all of the lights in an area at once. And the light switch or similar is a really sensible way to do that. I've done exactly what you uh, just suggested there. I have some, um, there are USB LED light strips um, under the uh, uh, counters, um, not under the counters, under the upper cabinets, that's it, in my kitchen. Um, and whenever I turn my, uh, my, my kitchen light off, then they, they give you a couple of seconds just to make sure in case you wanted to like quickly grab a glass of water as, you know, you hit the light switch and you turn the light off. It's like, oh, I wanted to grab that glass of water, but then they turn off as well. Um, and I think that by, you know, figuring out what do I need to be able to control together is also a really good starting point. And, and that kind of leads into the overall concept in a professional lighting design or a larger system. You want to think about the overall lighting in a room or an area rather than individual. It's very mm. rare to just flip a single light on or off. In fact, if you counted up the number of lights in a larger home, there would be hundreds. You couldn't have rows of 30 or 40 switches on the wall. So you have to start thinking from the beginning of the overall scene or effect. When you walk into a room, you want the count under counter lights to be on at a low level. You want some highlights above the counters that wall wash towards the ceiling or in cove lighting. So you think about the overall lighting effects that you want, and then you divide it into a few modes. Really, in a sense, it matches focus modes. Are you eating? Are you cooking? Are you cleaning up? Are you relaxing? And then the main physical controls change those modes rather than controlling individual lights. Yeah, that makes perfect sense because, of course, you have to remember what is the functionality of a room. You know, it's really easy to be like, oh, I found these really cool, you know, like they, they're, they're sort of like panels and you stick them on the wall and they light up and they flash in the rhythm with the music and things like that. And it's like, great. That's really cool for a demo of some really cool tech, but how are they going to fit into your life? Um, are you constantly having home disco parties where you're going to have and um, want music to light up um, and, and sort of have a disco effect in your house? Or do you actually maybe need some kind of like glowing reminder on Tuesdays that it's, uh, it's trash day and you need to take the rubbish outside? Um, or something like that. So figuring out how you can make it functional and fit in with your life is really important. Yes. The example I would give is if you remember when we first got word processors and fonts and colors, everything looked like a ransom note. That was the joke that anyone <laughs> wasn't a designer built these documents with 25 different fonts, all these different colors. 
Well, home automation is really at that ransom note level where we're so excited with all the things we can do and all the different things that are possible that we get lost in the fun of it rather than stepping back and looking at the final result of what we're trying to achieve, especially the impact on everyone else, not just ourselves. Yes, definitely. Along those lines, one of the areas that's overlooked is the aesthetics. And I suggest to pay more attention to how things look, the physical controls, the physical devices. Instead of buying six different types of light switches or dimmers, because each one has a feature you like, compromise on functionality by picking one brand, one physical style. So anywhere in your house, you see the same physical style of paddle or toggle or button. So you start Mm. to look at a visual integrity throughout your home, not just functionality. And wouldn't that technically be better as well? Because when you've got different switches on different, you know, uh, little mini boxes or different Wi-Fi bandwidth, that that can also lead to headaches? Yes, that simplifying the choice of devices can really increase the reliability. On the other hand, you don't want everything from one company. If you diversify a little bit, you can have some systems that are isolated yet work together. And when one thing doesn't work, you don't lose everything. And that was the classic reason why a lot of people still do not like having hubs or hub-based systems even though HomeKit and everything else really requires a hub. When the hub goes down, you lose a lot of control over everything. Yeah, but that is also where things like, for example, if you're looking at, say, Philips Hue lighting, um, you can get the 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 Philips Hue remotes, um, which can, you know, sort of uh, magnetize onto a light switch or next to a light switch. So, and those pair directly with the bulb. So even if the hub is offline, you still do have a way to control the lights. Um, but equally, if the hub is offline and therefore you can't connect with your devices, you have one thing to troubleshoot. If you have a whole bunch of, say, Wi-Fi connected devices or Bluetooth connected devices, then you've got a lot of potential points that you may need to go and troubleshoot if things aren't working right or aren't working at all. Because, you know, there's so many things that could go have gone wrong. It could be that the individual device has lost power, that it's not connecting and things like that. So I'm personally uh, a hub fan because I'd much rather have things talk to uh, one dongle and then that one dongle dongle plugged into my uh, internet network than have, uh, you know, 50 Wi-Fi devices trying to talk over Wi-Fi to each other and uh, inevitably not quite doing it right. Yes, I'm a big fan of not using Wi-Fi as much as possible and using hubs or centralized controllers. But I just want people to be aware that once they do that, they are introducing a potential single point of failure that may Mm. not exist as they just bought a few Wi-Fi plugs and devices and are just starting to get into growing into a larger system, there's a trade-off. The great thing is most physical lighting switches, we've been talking about lighting, but there's a lot of other devices, but lighting switches all mostly will work even when the hub or the power of the network is down because they're physically wired, the switches that are wired into the wall. But once you get beyond that to any other smart bulbs or smart devices, that is a a strong consideration. The other challenge I find is budget. We all want more than we can afford, whether 
we're a single person, a married couple, mm-hmm. a luxury home. No one ever says do everything. The checkbook is completely unlimited. <laughs> so what I would suggest is, is a trade-off here. If you standardize on one product, you're not going to be able to go get that latest device that's on sale for 20% off or $20 off or $50 off. So there's a there's a discipline of saying, I'm I've standardized. I know it's not always going to be the least expensive, but what I like to look at is, especially I did this when I was doing a, as a hobby, is think that you were hired to work on your own house, your own system. You know, put twenty dollars in a jar every time you spend an hour fiddling with something, or calculate what your hourly wage is as you spend the whole weekend reconfiguring your network or reconfiguring your home automation system what is the cost of you doing that work yes now apply that to the cost of the product if you buy a 20 dollars amazon special no name light switch or you buy a 60 or 80 dollar lutron or you buy a 50 dollars eve plug instead of a 10 dollars maras or other one if you spend three hours a month resetting it and rebooting it and, and fiddling with it because it never works right, have you really saved money? Mm. Yeah, this is definitely something that I think it, it's very easy to fall into the trap of um, starting out by buying the cheapest um, and, and messing with that. Um, because often I find people who start by buying the cheapest thing have a really bad experience. Whereas people who start with something like Philips Hue lights um, or the Lutron Caseta stuff, if you're in the US, um, they tend to have a much better experience because those companies, uh, well, they're selling a hub, which means that they want you to buy a whole bunch of their devices. Um, now, that doesn't mean to say that you have to start with um, you know, a, a hub-based device, but starting with the cheapest thing, especially, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna put my own note in here, Anything that says Toya, T-U-Y-A, or Smart Life, uh, that, that's going to be a recipe for it's not going to work the way you expect it to with everything. Because, uh, yeah, Toya is just a, a Chinese company who will sell their software to anybody and anybody can slap it on their device. And it, one dehumidifier doesn't work the same as the next dehumidifier, doesn't work the same as the next light bulb and so on and so forth. Um, so I definitely recommend people steer clear of those. But if you're looking for, you know, something to start with and you you want to get, you know, a smart plug, you know, it's worth looking at the physical form factor of the thing as well as what it can do, isn't it? And certainly as as Apple fans, we're used to paying a little more for quality. And in some ways, using HomeKit as a home automation system is self-selecting. It's until recently, and it still is, it's been difficult for a company to achieve HomeKit certification. Not only do they have to build the product, but they have to pay for a test lab to test it and put it through a lot of at least basic testing and compatibility. So that ensures that anything with HomeKit and and hopefully Matter standard certification now has is a level of quality above the basics. You can't just buy some chips, put them in a box and send it out the door and hope it works. There's more mm. to it. And I would add uh, about that cost element because like a good example for me is Lutron Cassetta because um, I struggled with smart lights. I, you know, I tried the Hue route and, and in the early days it was, it was misery because your family would turn off the switch and then all the automation would stop and it was expensive to buy all these bulbs. 
especially in the early days. And it, it was obvious to me once I, I got my first Lutron Cassetta that this is the solution for my house because the family can use them, no problem. I don't have to replace each individual bulb. And they uh, they are just dead-on reliable, and they've been that way for me since the beginning. In fact, I think, Robert, you're the person who told me to try it. <laughs> but the um, but they yes. were expensive. You know, They were like, I think it was like $80 when I bought my first one that included a hub. And what I did was about every month or two when I wanted to spend money on something dumb, and we all do that, right? You get you get the bug, like, oh, I want to buy myself something. And over the course of about 18 months, I replaced every switch in the house that I needed. I don't really want to think about how much money I ultimately spent on Lutron switches, but I would guess it's probably three or $400 total. And that was five, six years ago, and they're awesome and they still work and when i hear a noise in the house at night i push a button and the entire house lights up and when i you know come home i can light up just the lights in the stairwell in the kitchen and like they give me all the home automation stuff i need but i i never would have spent three or four hundred dollars to set them up but i would do it over time I, th- I think doing things over time as well, it's it's smart. You know, it's really tempting to just dive in and and, and start from scratch and be like, cool, clean slate. I'm going to do everything. But at the same time, by doing doing things slowly, you know, starting with uh, one room, like, say, your office or similar, if you work from home and you have an office or, um, you know, a, a room that's perhaps primarily utilized by the tech nerd um, of the home. And I'm working out from there, then that gives you a bit of time to iron out the kinks in the system, right? And fix the bugs, um, which you will inevitably have. It doesn't matter how great the hardware is and how perfect your setup is, you will find an unexpected human behavior that you have to then account for in your uh, in your actual solution uh, to things. So I, I personally like the, I'm going to start here, I'm going to try this. Okay, cool. That's working. Let's roll it out somewhere a bit more, u- a bit more utilized, and so on and so forth, so that you can, you know, get everything started uh, on a nice, even surface where you're not, you know, you're not part of the way through installing your fifteenth light switch of the weekend when suddenly you have to go and deal with like a thing, and then there's, you know, some of the lights are are done, some of the lights aren't done, but you didn't really have a list because you were just working through it, and and now you don't know what's not done. Right. And what I like to do, especially with in my own home and in advising other people, is if you're not building an entire new house or not trying to design a system for an entire house, I like to go with a pain-based solution. What I mean is do things that you have a problem with now. You see a real need. You want to fix a problem. You're getting terrible sound out of your TV, so you want to look at maybe using a sound bar, maybe using a pair of home pods, maybe using Sonos. You have an objective you want that's going to improve and be measurably better when you're done. You're not just fiddling. If mm-hmm. you have lights that you have a light in the pantry recently, we have a little pantry and we have people, guests, visitors, and they open and close the pantry. Hey Joe, get this pasta out for us or you know we're cooking together. And the mm-hmm. light stays on. It bothered me after three years I put a motion sensor in the pantry and I replaced the dimmer on the wall with a smart dimmer. So now the door opens and closes and the lights just go on and off and I never have to get annoyed or upset the lights left on. Mm. I think I think that that is a really good idea. You know, one of the things that I did is I when I moved into my place, I did 
kind of go all out. I put hue bulbs in everywhere. Um, and then I put the hue dimmers on the wall so that I could use them like normal lights as well. Um, but after I did that, I realized after a while that there were, you know, two rooms that I hadn't done that in because uh, they didn't take normal bulbs and they were bugging me. And it, it took me, you know, a month or two to realize, you know what, the bathroom light and the kitchen light not turning out when I press the button by the bed that's like, I'm going to sleep now, turn out all the lights, please. That's bugging me. Uh, I'm I'm going to fix that. And, you know, I, I got some people into to sort that because uh, over here in the UK, messing with electrics in the kitchen, the bathroom needs uh, an electrician. Um, for that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's 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 worth, you know, seeing what what is bothering you. You know, is it that there is something plugged in in a really awkward to access place um, and you don't want it on all the time, but there's no switch on the device itself? You know, maybe a smart plug is the solution for that. Um, but, you know, it's amazing how far home automation has come because there's so much more than just smart plugs and uh, and lights now, isn't there? Absolutely. And and it's important to not feel guilty of not doing everything. I have a problem with our garage where I wanted to know if the door was left open. I mm. didn't want an automated garage door opener. And there have been lots of issues. And the issues have cropped up again with integration with HomeKit being dropped and problems. But for me, I don't need to open and close the door remotely. I can do that with the HomeLink traditional setup built into my car. But I wanted to know if the door was shut. So the solution I did was I put a camera in the garage facing the door. So there's no privacy concerns. And now I can visually confirm, and that's the only thing I will trust, if the door is open or closed. Mm -hmm. Along with that, it is nice to have a signal, an indicator, if someone opened or closed the door. So I use a door and window sensor. I'd like to claim credit, but I saw this online years ago. You take a door window sensor and you put it on a large hinge, like a four inch hinge, mm -hmm. and you attach the hinge to your garage door. So as the door goes up gravity, the hinge swings away and breaks the connection with the magnet on the sensor. It's a simple way to have a wireless sensor for your garage door without going into a complete garage door opener closer with the sensors and the wires and everything needed to get that going, unless you want that, unless you need the automatic open and close. This episode of Automators is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Whenever we've hired somebody new at work or I've been looking for a new job, I've found that one of the best things to do is to actually dive into the person's history and find out exactly what skills they've got which are transferable to our team. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn also knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. That's why they're constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. It's easy to see why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash automators. That's linkedin.com slash automators to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so Robert, um, let's talk about, let's let's go global a little bit you know we're here in 2024 
a lot of people are hearing this word matter. They're not really sure what it means. We've got uh, HomeKit, Home Assistant, Google Home, all these different platforms. Can you kind of draw a picture for us of what's going on? Once you get beyond one or two smart plugs or smart devices, you need a system to pull it all together. And there's really a few key things that a hub or controller provide. One is remote access, the ability to access everything in your home when you're not home. It provides Mm -hmm. the gateway, the communications path. So if you're traveling, if you want to turn the heating or air conditioning on when you're away, if you want to shut the lights down, you want to check security, you want to be able to do that when you're not home. So that immediately in HomeKit that the HomeKit hub or controller provides that. And the HomeKit hub is an Apple TV or a HomePod. In systems like Google or Amazon, their apps do that through their cloud. <clears throat> their apps do that through their cloud infrastructure. And in more advanced hobbyist and prosumer devices like Home Assistant or Hubitat, the hub itself either provides it or has an add-on capability for remote access. So the first thing you want to do in looking at a bigger system is really choosing, if you want to be organized and not go crazy, choosing one main system to be the heart, whether it's Apple HomeKit or Google or Amazon or Home Assistant. By main system, that is the system you first connect everything to when you get a new product. Mm -hmm. You may also connect it to others, but that's going to be your primary. That's where you want it to work reliably. That's where you want your most control to be. And then you may link it into other systems. So it's kind of like the backbone where, you know, everything else is is linking out from from that spine um, to connect to things. But there there is a central place where everything is tied in. Yes. And it's somewhat technical, but it's also organizational. You could have three or four different hub or systems that have lights on one and security on the other and cameras on another, but you're going to drive yourself crazy. So wherever possible, I recommend designating one primary system and only going to the other systems when you have unmet needs or capabilities that you want done by them. I'll I'll give an example. In in my home, I use Amazon devices for voice control. Mm -hmm. Historically, I started with them first before Apple and Siri had HomeKit and did much. But even today, I don't rely on Siri and HomePods and voice. I do rely at, rely on Apple as the controller, but I rely on Amazon for the voice. So I've, I've made my complexity a little simpler because I only have to worry about voice access from the Amazon ecosystem. I don't care about using the app. I don't care about using anything else they provide to control things. I only care about can I use my voice to turn things on or off in my home that way. Everything else is centric in HomeKit. And then I use Home Assistant and a few other things as experimental or supplemental. If I want really advanced automations or if I want to do things or bring devices in that I simply can't bring in, I do it that way. Yes, that makes a lot of sense to me because there, there, you know, it really depends on what it is that ends up feeling natural. And you know, for some some people, they they started with um, Amazon's voice assistant, which I'm not going to say the name of in case I trigger it for everybody. Um, 
you know, they started with that, you know, because that was kind of one of the first things around, or maybe they, they had some, some Google homes or something. And so, yeah, you've, if you've already got those devices and they're okay, they're working for you, then, you know, upgrading to HomePods everywhere, or even HomePod minis everywhere could be a very expensive endeavor. And you mentioned earlier about starting with the pain points, um, you know, if, if those things are working for you and your family, your home is working with them, then there's no reason to to throw them away and, and start over in, unless, you know, there is something specific about them that's bothering you. Um, and I certainly agree. Home Assistant is so good for uh, putting things together that uh, don't otherwise necessarily go together in, in the way that you would want. You know, I had uh, for quite a while, I had a smart dehumidifier um, because uh, we have a little bit of a humidity problem in the UK indoors. Um, so you usually, uh, well, at least my family has always had dehumidifiers to try and help control that. So I had a smart plug and a humidity sensor uh, connected together through Home Assistant to make a smart dehumidifier, which wouldn't have been possible with the other systems. And that was one of the things that ended up bringing me more towards Home Assistant but I started predominantly with HomeKit, which worked very well for me until I needed more. Yes. And the nice thing is those kinds of automations are hidden or invisible. So the fact that you set it up with Home Assistant or even with some other system, the rest of the people in the house don't have to know that. It just works and exactly. it does what's needed. But yeah. the great thing now is we're in a period of confusion, but we're in a period of growth. Until now, if you bought Apple products, you had to use HomeKit. If you bought a Google smart speaker, you had to have products that ran with Google. Each ecosystem was isolated. Over time, the manufacturers, brute force, made their products work with more than one. So very often you'd pick up a device and it said works with HomeKit, works with Google, works with Amazon. But they had to go through three times the effort to do that. And they didn't mm. always work the same with each of these different systems. Now, euphemistically, we call that, I mean, and it's not just home automations with everything. It's called a walled garden. But I've yeah. always called it a walled prison because it really restricts you and controls what you can do against your own will. I was just going to say, I definitely agree. I've seen uh, people purchase like a, a smart uh, switch or something, and then they can get access to the um, like power usage and so on through the um, through um, Amazon system or through the Google system or through the app for the device, but they can't get access to that through HomeKit because it's just not available there. And that's very frustrating for people who want to use this sort of thing with HomeKit. So it sounds like you're telling us something is changing there. Yes, the the new matter standard, which is a consortium, you can you know go through all the technical details, but it's basically a combination of the biggest manufacturers all realizing no one of them can rule the consumer market. So they all agreed in sort of a detente to work together. They contributed both technology and market presence and availability so that going forward, there'll be one set of standards for connecting devices. But I really like to put it in perspective. Matter is a case of, is the glass half empty or is the glass half full? If you look at all the promises of everything great it's going to do, we're still waiting for a lot of that to happen. But if you look at the basics, at the very basic level, it's succeeding in doing two things. 
is succeeding in providing a basic connectivity where a product will work with all of these ecosystems at a basic level of functionality. So if you buy a new smart plug and it says it's matter compatible, that's all you have to worry about, whether you're Google, Amazon, HomeKit, uh, Home Assistant, or others, it will work at a reasonable level with all of them. And that's a major accomplishment because until now, you had to really buy the product for the system you own. The second benefit, which is sometimes overlooked or not, is it provides one programming model for the manufacturers and creators of the products. They now have to provide a matter interface, a matter driver, matter software, and they're done. They can now build that product and it will work with all of these different systems. So there's a cost and efficiency benefit. Now in the short term, we're seeing a negative and the pundits are saying there's now a race to the bottom where there's no difference between all these products and therefore a $50 smart plug and a $10 smart plug, they're all the same. Now that's really not true, but it's very confusing. We haven't seen the market or the products figure out how to be a standardized product while still having added value. There's a few companies doing that very well, but a lot of others are just racing to slap the matter label on their product and they haven't thought about it. So they're dropping their prices. So what are the ways that these products distinguish themselves? So a great example is the Eve line of products. They started with HomeKit only products and by adding matter support, they're now able to work with a wider variety of systems, but they've always had very high reliability to the hardware and added features. In the plugs that Eve provides, they provide power monitoring and power management. So you can see the usage, how much electricity a product plugged in is using. If you wanna monitor how much is your TV using or an air conditioner or other devices, if they meet the amp load, you can get all that information. The downside today is you still have to go to their app or any manufacturer's app for this added value. So the thought that Matter would eliminate all these apps and eliminate having to have different apps for different products is not completely true. If you want the extra features, you still have to go to the manufacturer's app. Similarly, with security cameras or with many other products, most of the added features are still controlled or only accessible through the manufacturer's app. But that's something that is hopefully at least a matter of time, isn't it? Because by having a standard for these things, that means that if um, Elgato Eve um, have power monitoring, then they can uh, expose that information to other systems like HomeKit in the same way that a Philips uh, smart plug would be able to. I don't think the Philips one does smart monitoring, but if it did, um, then then that's how it could expose that. Um, and then they would be able to do that in the same way, which will hopefully make it easier for um, Apple with HomeKit and uh uh, Amazon with uh, their system and Google with the home system to actually read this data in instead of having to do a 
well, here is a list of 68 different thousand different, uh, you know, possible properties you could pass to us. Uh, please be nice. Please actually put the numbers in the number boxes and the text in the text boxes instead of vice versa, because that will make things not work very well. Um, so hopefully by, by, by having standards for this, you know, I know the master standard is still quite early. I, I think at the moment they're still working on locks or locks have only just come in. I can't remember exactly where locks are within the matter standard right now, because that's the sort of one that I've been eyeballing. Um, but, um, you know, by by having a standard, a unifying standard that everybody is working, uh, you know, towards and, and with, then hopefully we can actually get to the point where somebody can say, okay, so this is, you know, the, the wattage and the amperage and, and the voltage and, you know, summing all of that together, that means this. Um, and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm hoping that this is going to be great for everybody. One thing I like to remind folks is it's not a bad thing. The worst case with matter or other standards is it's no worse than what we have now. But the upside, this potential, as you mentioned, for getting more features standardized, more capability available is a good thing. So don't look at we can't look at it as it. It's only been out a year or two. It's already a failure. No, it's still growing. It may take three, four, five years to get to where we want it to be. But it's a subtle issue also. A lot of the features we want that are in the device can be used from the existing ecosystems. If you take a motion sensor and you go into the app for the motion sensor, for example, the uh, I'm thinking the Akara FP2, which uses radar type technology, micro millimeter wave, you can go into the app and set zones and set a lot of advanced features, but you don't need to deal with that in HomeKit. When you go into HomeKit, you simply have a trigger saying, if this motion happened, do something else. Now that motion might be just a small area of one room because you've programmed that in the device itself. So you get the benefits of advanced features even though all those features don't map directly into functionality in HomeKit or app in Google or the or even Home Assistant today, you can still take advantage of it. So I wouldn't shy away from these newer technologies. Just be aware that Rome wasn't built in a day. So give it time. And as features become popular, the standards will incorporate them and raise the level of function that is considered standard. Uh, so something actually is offering matter support now. Not if they're promising matter support will come soon, but if they're actually offering matter support, then that means that, you know, whatever they do within the matter realm is hopefully just going to straight up be available to HomeKit and so on and so forth, which means that's better. Of course, if something just like uh, the the old days, if something's HomeKit coming soon, matter coming soon, maybe hold off until it actually has matter support um, or actually has... Uh, whatever it is support that you're looking for, but providing it's got the matter framework uh, there and it's using that, then, you know, it should be, uh, assuming the standard goes forward and, and the, you know, creator of whatever this hardware is actually does, you know, update their software. Um, it Everything should be able to tie in and interlink together, I hope, um, from what you're saying. Yes. And, and matter, having the matter certification is again, a quality baseline. So if you buy products that are HomeKit certified and now Matter certified, you know the manufacturer has at least 
paid ten to fifty thousand dollars to join the CSA Alliance. They have paid twenty to ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars to have a lab test their product. So there's an implied quality level by buying a matter product or a home kit product in the past. So it it really, unless you're buying the least expensive product to just play with, I would recommend going with the standardized products, looking for products from major manufacturers. And if you go out online and read the reviews, you get a sense of who the big brands are, who the big companies are, companies like Acara, companies like Lutron, companies like Ecobee or Ecobee for thermostats. And there are maybe a dozen or so really high quality companies and it's growing. But if you stick to those brands, you're going to have less trouble. If you want to be the most frugal, then you can go to the second tier companies that are now getting matter or home kit certified and you can buy them on amazon you can buy them in big box stores and again it's relatively safe when you start going to aliexpress and buying products directly from asia with unknown brands then you're an experimenter there's nothing wrong with that and you may find some incredibly interesting products but be aware and set your expectation of what you're looking for and what you're going to achieve all right, so let, let's assume that someone listening is willing to trade money for reliability, right? They want to get the better quality product so they can have a successful home automation install. What are some of your recommended brands in the various categories like lights and switches and sensors? I mean, it, it, when you're setting it up, Robert, what are the brands that you rely on? Sure. Now, with, with all the usual disclaimers, et cetera, sure. there are for wired switches I and dimmers, I always recommend Lutron. They're my number one choice. They're just so reliable. The only complaint I hear on Lutron is the price, not anything else. For smart bulbs where you can't do wired switches or you have lamps and other reasons, you want color variation, you want tunable white, then Philips Hue is, is my number one go-to brand in the, that arena. Yeah. For Plugins, smart plugs, it, it's really a variety. I, I've used Eve in the past. They're very good. They're still a little pricey. I've now had very good luck with Maras and a few of the other brands that are certified. So I'd say there. And again, the installation is a plug. You're not opening walls. You're not doing something that you don't want to reinstall if it doesn't work. So that's pretty safe. But as an example on that, like I, so I have struggled over the years for outdoor smart plugs. Like I had at one point an outdoor fountain and then this year I had the outdoor Christmas lights and I have made the mistake of buying the cheap one on Amazon and they never work or they work for like two weeks. Um, but I finally took your advice. I bought an Eve outdoor plug and I think this is like the third year running I've been using it. It's just, you know, and it's just an example of sometimes it makes sense to buy the more expensive one because it just gets rid of all the headaches. The, the other area where I would recommend clearly a brand or two, and that's motorized shades and blinds. Uh, once again, I'm a big fan of Lutron. The Serena is the consumer line. Also, uh, Somfy, but you really have to go through a dealer for that. And quite honestly, Hunter Douglas has been doing very well. That's a traditional designer, decorator brand, but it is sold through big box stores and retail, not just through dealers. But to be honest, the, the two issues with window coverings are 
aesthetics, the fabric choices and the colors and the motors. And mm-hmm. the number one reason I choose Lutron is they are incredibly quiet and precision. If you do a house where you have three or four or five blinds or shades, when they all completely go up and down, completely synchronized, they're not all at a half inch off of each other and you can't hear them. They're totally silent. So that's what makes them expensive. If you don't care about the sound, if you don't care about a limited choice of fabrics, if you don't need them cut to custom sizes, then there's a lot more happening today with smart blinds. I, uh, Ikea has products that are good. There's other mm-hmm. companies like Smart Wings and a few others. I haven't used them, but I know folks that are happy with them because they're they're much less expensive. I personally have IKEA blinds. Uh, they aren't the quietest, um, but they're they're certainly not loud. Um, and I also have some Akara blind controllers and uh, Akara and Switchbot curtain motors that you can put um, onto like a curtain rail to move your curtains back and forth. Um, and they all work very well. Um, you know, obviously the Lutron ones um, and uh, the Hunter Douglas ones would be lovely, but those aren't uh, available over here in the UK which meant that I was limited to what I could get elsewhere. And I've had, uh, and the Akara ones in particular, I really like. They can deal with some very heavy curtains without any issues. That sounds good. And you did mention Akara. I did want to say that in general, that the line of products from Akara on Zigbee, which is a type of wireless communication, is, is a great selection, a great variety, very cost-effective. Personally, I'm not ready to deploy thread devices as a wireless interface. I think it's still immature. There's still a lot of kinks being worked out. So in the short term, I would stick with Zigbee as a wireless communications method for shades, blinds, sensors, anything that uh, can not have to be Wi-Fi and needs to be low power. Zigbee is a great choice. And Akara is really hitting them out of the park now. I've been very lucky with uh, the Akara things because I was able to buy uh, the hub, um, the the HomeKit enabled hub, um, which I, I then actually ended up connecting to Home Assistant um, here in the UK. But the sensors I was able to pick up on AliExpress. Um, so like the door sensors, the window sensors, the temperature sensors, um, motion sensors and things like that. And because they're connecting to the hub. Uh, and they aren't Wi-Fi based. I didn't have to worry about them, you know, phoning home or anything because they're just sending data to a hub that says, I'm open, I'm closed. I saw something move. I didn't see something move. It is 18 degrees. It is 19 degrees. Uh, That's Celsius, just for clarification, folks. Don't worry, I'm not actually freezing here. Um, And uh, so, yeah, you know, it's they've definitely been very nice to to get to know from that perspective. And their their stuff seems to be very good, as well as being affordable, which is always uh, a nice thing for people who are looking to dip their toe in. You know, their sensors in particular are so small that I feel like that is one of the problems that people have with some smart home things. You know, they they would like motion sensors in their room, but they don't want, you know, this giant thing staring out from the, from the wall, looking at them the whole time. They want something that kind of blends in with the decor, like you were saying with the, with the window shades. You want something that looks nice. Um, and uh, yeah, finding something that, that blends in or, or just disappears essentially is really key for me with it when it comes to uh, sensors. 
This episode of The Automators is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Go to expressvpn.com slash automators for high-speed, secure, and anonymous VPN services and get an extra three months for free. You may not know this, but when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a fraction of what Netflix actually has. There are 18,000 titles globally, but only 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., That means you might be missing out on thousands of great shows and movies if you're not using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location, which means you can switch where Netflix thinks you're located. ExpressVPN has over 100 different locations, so you can gain access to thousands of new shows no matter where you live. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN helps you access more content on all streaming services. Disney Plus, Hulu, Max, BBC iPlayer, you name it. So, for example, I can kick back and watch The Office on Canada's Netflix, which is great because I can't access it any other way, and I like The Office. Another great show I love that's not available to me otherwise is Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is on Canada Netflix. And it's so simple to do. Just fire up the ExpressVPN app on the computer or TV, change the location, Refresh Netflix, and that's it. In general, VPNs can be super slow, but the reason so many people love ExpressVPN is it's so fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and all your shows stream in HD quality. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. And if you use the Automators link, we got them to give you an extra three months free. So just go to expressvpn.com slash automators, sign up and get those extra three months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash automators to get those three extra months completely free. And our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of the automators and all of Relay FM. Uh, before the break, uh, Rose was talking about Acara. You know, I bought a Acara human presence sensor and it is really impressive. I mean, because in the past I've tried to do the thing where you have the motion sensor in the room but like then when you sit still the lights turn off um the whole the human presence sensor to me feels like a step above but it hasn't entirely solved the problem yet it still does occasionally think i've left the room and it does have a little bit of a delay but i feel like we're just on the verge of that like fundamental problem of people saying i want to walk in a room i want the lights to turn off and i want to walk out of the room and i want them to turn off i guess i misstated that but you know you walk in they turn on you walk out they turn off what do you think of these human presence sensors that are starting to show up on the market i think the technology is very impressive but it's still a lot of tweaking and adjusting required to make them work properly and probably that's the one area if we want to point to anything where the, the AI hype could really help. I mean, I would love for there to be more AI-enabled sensors that will just simply figure out what you want, how you use your home, who goes in, who goes out of a room, and configure themselves to operate the way you want. It's it's a never-ending job to to twiddle and tweak and play with those if if it's more than yourself in your own office or room. Yeah. And that really that brings us to important point, which is the big challenge in home automation is that it's not an individual activity. We're used to our smartphones, our watches, our computers, that is one device, one person. We set it the way we want. No one else tells us what to do. They don't care what we do. 
They don't have to like it or not like it. In a home automation system, you're living in a house, you're living with other people, you're living with multi-user aspects that even Apple has ignored for 20 years. Security, restriction, the kids, I don't want the kids to fiddle with the lights in the kitchen, but they need control of the lights in their bedroom. There's a lot of challenges that have not been addressed. All right. I'd like to switch topics real quick. So I bought a home assistant yellow about a year ago. Uh, I go into the app every week or two and make sure everything's updated, but I hit a stumbling block with this. And I know that you're a fan and I know Rose is definitely a fan. Um, uh, so home assistant, uh, I'll give the novice description. You guys can tell me where I'm wrong, but it, it gives you a lot more flexibility than HomeKit. It shows you where things break and there's a lot more devices that connect to it. Just a few days ago, I got an email from a Max Berkey lab member who was telling me how he has home assistant connected to his Kia electric vehicle. Well, I've got one of those and he's able to know, like it can give him a reminder when the car needs charging. And I like, wow, I, I have that ability and I haven't done it yet. And I'll tell you what went wrong. I got home assistant set up. I started putting everything in it and then the home kit switches and the home kit app started behaving funny. And my wife and kids uh, who are never going to use home assistant, by the way, uh, were complaining that all of a sudden nothing was working right. And I realized that I was going, I went in too deep with home assistant and it was causing problems for them with home kit. I backed off immediately and I just haven't taken the time to go figure out that problem. So if someone's listening like me and they have a home kit, you know, trained family, but they want to do something like home assistant where they get a lot more power. How do you, you know, live in both worlds at once? Tell me what I'm doing wrong, guys. How many hours do you have? But uh, <laughs> first step is, again, as we mentioned earlier, deciding who is the master controller. With Home Assistant, you can have HomeKit devices from Apple that are accessible in Home Assistant, or you can have devices loaded into Home Assistant that are pushed out into HomeKit. And it's very subtle, but if Home Assistant is controlling everything, then if something doesn't work, those devices don't work anywhere. If HomeKit is natively controlling devices, then Home Assistant is an add-on kind of tapping it on the shoulder saying, let me have a look, let me also fiddle with things, but it's not controlling everything. So I probably did that wrong. <laughs> I probably was letting home assistant take over and push to home kit is what i was doing well i think letting home assistant take over isn't necessarily the problem the problem that i see most often is where people start letting home assistant take over but then they kind of don't let it actually go all the way where they say oh no 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 but i i, I just want to keep this this one thing just keep it in home kit um and I feel like if you're going to get Home Assistant to be the primary controller, you need to just embrace that. Put everything in there. Don't put everything in HomeKit. Take it out of HomeKit and send it back to HomeKit from Home Assistant. But Robert may have a different perspective. Well, I think we're saying the same thing is if you're not ready to embrace Home Assistant and put the time in to tweak it and adjust it and get everything running there, don't be half into both systems. Be all in on one and dabble in the other, but don't have some things in one, some things in the other. And you, it's, it's tough because actually what I would suggest is setting up a separate network, not network, but a separate 
home, maybe at one room and just do home assistant entirely for that room to get familiar with it and go deeper and then see if you're ready or willing to embrace it more. I would not try to fiddle with both of them and then you've got things breaking in HomeKit or else it's running in HomeKit, but you're not able to do everything with it in Home Assistant. It, it all gets back to, I mean, a simpler anecdote is a, a neighbor once called me into their home to help them. My lights not working in the bedroom with my voice assistant. When I tell it to turn the lights on, they don't work. Okay. What do you have? Well, I have Phillips Hue. Okay. Well, show me where it works. Well, to take me down to the kitchen. There is an Amazon Echo device. They're talking to it. Lights go on, lights go off. Everything is fine. They go upstairs to the bedroom. There is a Google Home device and it's not working. Lights don't go on. I said, well, did you configure the Google Home to talk to the Philips smart bulbs? And I got a blank stare. And then I showed them and then I got a bigger stare. I said, well, now you're going to have to always replicate what you do in Google with what you do in Amazon. You've got to recreate the same routines, the same commands, et cetera. And they threw their hands up. I said, well, let's back up. Why do you have two different devices? Oh, I got that Google thing free when I bought something at the store a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, why don't we not use that? Why don't we set everything up with Amazon or even Apple, whatever you like? Oh, no, I don't want to do that. I got it. It's free. I want to use it. So sometimes you have to discipline and say, where do you want to put your stuff? What system do you want to use and segregate how you're doing it? So mm -hmm. in your case, David, you, I don't think you want to learn how to build dashboards in Home Assistant and go deep in it. So I would keep it for the advanced rules and automations and be very careful which devices you expose to it and which devices you have in both systems in a way that you can use them from both without one interfering with the other as much as possible. That's probably what I need to do. I, you know, I can't, I don't know that I feel comfortable going all in with it. If I lived alone, I think I would be more likely to do something like that. Um, just because I finally got these people that I live with happy with home automation. And I don't want to do anything to put that at risk, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It, it does make sense. I Yeah. I personally find that Home Assistant specifically for the automations is just so good, though, because you can see what happened and when and why. And that's where I like putting everything into Home Assistant so I can track that with all the automations. But at the same time, I can see why that would be pretty scary for some people. But also, it's just like it's so much better in terms of like intera interactions. Like I've got a Samsung TV in here that I can control with home assistant. And I've got apparently a car that I can monitor with home assistant. And there, it seems like, or even those Acara sensors uh, seem to kind of work yes. better with home assistant uh, because of the Zigbee or whatever. I'm a little bit out of my league here, um, but the, um, but it does, there's a lot of reasons to want to do more with it. But at the same time, if my wife wants to turn out the lights in the kitchen She's got to be able to turn off the lights in the kitchen, you know, <laughs> and I, uh, uh, and I, I don't know. I, I guess I need to spend like an afternoon just digging in on this. I'm not a bozo. I can figure this stuff out. It's just that, you know, we kind of hit that, that friction point. I backed away from it and I've just not had time to go back and, and figure out what went wrong and, and where I should go with this. 
Well, a good analogy, whether it's home assistant, whether it's Habitat, whether it's a few other things, if we think back about the PC industry, we had IBM compatible IBM PCs, we had Apple. Yeah. If you tune your PC, if you hot rod it, if you built your own and went to Fry's Electronics and selected every component and found the drivers for the video card or the this or that serial port, you had an amazing system. But 80% of the time, you were always fiddling with it, getting it working again. Yeah. Whereas if you bought an Apple, it just worked. You couldn't do everything the PC could do, but the things you wanted to do were just smooth and buttery and integrated and it just flowed together. I think Home Assistant or other DIY prosumer automation systems have that same challenge. If you don't want a hobby, you just want the damn thing to work, then HomeKit or one of the other mass market systems makes sense. I mean, that's the dirty little secret of why in the professional and the luxury space, Crestron, Control4, Savant, companies most consumers haven't heard of, are still dominating. People spend $50,000 on a system so they never touch it. They literally call a guy when anything needs to be changed. They don't want a hobby. They just want it to work. They're willing to not choose the equipment, choose the brands of lights, choose every little gadget because having it work and not worrying about it, it's not a hobby. It's not an avocation. It's just a tool that they want working. So I think HomeKit and even Google and Amazon to some extent are more of that just work type of system. So the key to bring it all back around, are there really cool automations you want to do or you have to do? If you have to do, then you have to find ways to do that. If you want to do, then you have to decide, well, how can I partition everything? Perhaps do my studio on home automation not do the rest of the house so no one else is affected. If it screws up, I get up and walk over and flip the manual switch until I fix it, but I don't have a wife or kids or visitors screaming at me. Yeah, it, it is funny how much of this home automation stuff involves other humans and make, you know, and making it work for them. And so often, just like me, there's one person in the house that wants to go right off the cliff with this stuff, and the rest of them just want the lights to turn on just probably a challenge for you as a professional when you, when you're helping people, right. You almost have to coach your clients here. It's like, Hey, is the rest of your family okay with this? And how are we going to do this in a way that, that they don't look at Robert Spivak as the guy who came in and made their house wonky. Well, a lot of what I do professionally uh, would bore you guys because the automations are so simple. The setups are not complicated. They're the focus is on shades, lights, audio, music, not on, you know, sitting, detecting if you haven't moved in your chair and not the lights, not turning off. They're, their needs are different. and But what they want is ultra reliability, which is something that I don't see in the smart home consumer space. For us, people I talk with, when they say, oh, yeah, my, my dimmers work every month or two, they fall off the network. I have to factory reset them and reconfigure them. And that's okay. That is not just unacceptable, but that is a disaster in a professional system. We yeah. want things to work like a toaster. Never think about it, never touch it. You go to the toaster, you put your toast in. You don't think, well, is this the one time in a hundred that it's not going to toast today? No, it just works. 
home automation is getting there, but it's not there today. So the less you do to make it less reliable, the less you mix systems, the less you try to use an Amazon device with Apple HomeKit products, the less you can experiment, then the more reliable you can make it. Definitely. That I'm personally a huge fan of being able to to look at what happened when you're setting things up and figuring out why that thing happened or didn't happen and so on, which is one of the reasons why I have really enjoyed Home Assistant's traces for automations and scripts so I can see, okay, well, it got to the point where it checked if it was a Thursday and it said, no, oh, that's because today's Tuesday. Well, okay, so that did work, but maybe I need something that works on Tuesdays and Thursdays and figuring it out. And I think one of the, the key skills to remember when you're when you're looking at all of this stuff is, um, you know, your basic troubleshooting, you know, grabbing a pen and paper or an iPad Pro and an Apple Pencil and, and writing down, okay, so when this happens, then that happens. And just figuring out the basics and, and starting with that and then working on the refinements slowly and carefully from there. So, okay, every time I walk into the room, the lights turn on. Good start. Every time I walk into the room and it's dark, well, define dark and progress from there. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of people make with uh, home automation is they 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 go straight into, okay, so when I come home and it's on Thursday after 8 p.m. and it's dark and nobody else is home, I want this. And it's like, whoa, you set yourself about 800 conditions that you need to wade through there. Start with when I come home, the lights turn on and then progress to uh, the next most complicated one from there. And, and honestly, Apple is partly at fault for some of this stuff because they put options in HomeKit, like saying when it's just me at home, because in theory, they know who's there and not there, depending on what devices are present. But I find that that stuff generally is unreliable. My advice to, to anyone with automations, I mean, Home Assistant is nice because it documents, but with any other system, create a, a record of what you're doing. I mean, pad and pencil or, you know, any method, online, electronic, don't get hung up on how. But if someone were to steal your HomeKit hub or to erase everything, how would you recreate all the automations you've painfully built up over the years? It, it's sadly necessary to become a nerd and document spreadsheets or notes write down what it's supposed to do what you want it to do now the good thing is if you use a hub if you use lutron or use a cara there's what i call the number one magic trick of smart home that's the first time you mess up and rebuild your system when you add the hub and all the devices connected to the hub just populate and come right back into your system versus Wi-Fi devices that you have to go around to each one and reset and individually add them again. You'll realize that hubs do solve a lot and make things a lot easier. There's also a really great little app on the App Store called HomePass, which means that if you do have, you know, devices like a, a single smart plug that's uh, got Wi-Fi on it and you've put it behind a really heavy piece of furniture that you can't really easily get to and you have to reset stuff, if you scanned the pass into HomePass, you know, that little HomeKit connection uh, barcode, then you don't have to move the giant piece of furniture more than you need to to just press and hold the button to reset it because you'll be able to scan that barcode from another device to add it back to your smart home uh, if you do have to reset things. So that could be really useful. 
It's like, how is that not a built-in feature in the home app? You know, it's like once you scan something that it just keeps a memory of it where you can go and access it again, that feels... It, it keeps a memory of it until you reset your home. That's the problem. Um, because when you've reset your home, well, you're going to have to find your things, right? And put them back together because you, you didn't want any of that. So it got rid of it, uh, which, you know, is a, a, a theoretically nice idea. Uh, thanks for that, Apple. It'd be nice to export those. But HomePals can help at least. I would settle for the home app from Apple having search. I mean, literally, I can't find devices in my configuration. Fortunately, I use Controller for HomeKit, which is one of the mm-hmm. excellent third-party apps, and it has a search function. If I want to find where did I put that smart plug, which room did I put it in, what did I call it, there. so there's certainly room for third-party apps to embellish or extend whatever system you're using, and ultimately, I'd like to see more of that incorporated by Apple. But backup and restore is still not a feature of HomeKit. It is in controller for HomeKit and other apps. But so the basics, there are some basics you have to deal with when you're not using a more professional oriented system, whether it's a prosumer system like Home Assistant or others, there's just backup and restore. You'd think that is so basic. Robert, do you have any other apps that you would recommend people check out if they're using HomeKit in addition to controller? Well, we haven't talked a lot about the physical networking aspects and Wi-Fi networks can be challenging. I use, it's a more a little bit more professional, but they <clears throat> they have a free version, an app called NetSpot, which runs on a laptop on a Mac. And it provides the ability to do heat map surveys, which means walking around your house with your laptop, measuring the Wi-Fi and giving you visual maps of where you have dead spots, where you have weak spots and I find that it's very useful if you're planning to figure out where to put your access points or how to improve your Wi-Fi coverage. This episode of Automators is brought to you by Vitaly. Customer success teams today are facing a problem. How do they connect customer data back to their work? Vitaly changes that. It's a new kind of customer success platform, an all-in-one collaborative workspace that combines your customer data with all the capabilities you expect from today's project management and work platforms. Because it's designed for today's customer success team, that's why Vitaly operates with unparalleled efficiency, improves net revenue retention, and delivers best-in-class customer experiences. It's the solution to helping your customer success team keep a better pulse on your customers, which maximizes productivity, visibility, and collaboration. You can boost your bottom line by driving more revenue per customer with Vitaly. And if you take a qualified demo of Vitaly, get a free pair of AirPods Pro. So if you're a customer success decision maker actively seeking CS solutions, working at a B2B software as a service company with 50 to 1,000 employees, and you're willing to explore changing customer success platforms if you already have one in place, schedule your call by visiting vitaly.io slash automators and get that free pair of AirPods Pro. That's vitally.io slash automators for a free pair of AirPods Pro when you schedule a qualified meeting. Our thanks to Vitally for their support of this show and Relay FM. Before the break, Robert, you had mentioned NetSpot and, you know, checking out the heat map of Wi-Fi in your house. I think this is kind of the dirty secret to me of home automation for a lot of people is that the problem isn't that they bought the wrong device, but their Wi-Fi is so stinky that it just isn't working reliably for home automation. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that problem and how to approach it? 
the device that brings internet into your home is really a multifunction device. Typically, you may get it from your internet provider. So it's actually a router, a switch, a firewall, a gateway. It's doing a lot of things and it does none of them extremely well. It works good enough until you start adding lots of Wi-Fi devices and really running a lot more on your network. So I certainly say the first thing you want to do is look at replacing the standard uh, ISP or carrier-provided equipment with your own devices. And that will help a lot. But the other question is whether you have enough coverage in your home, whether your home has a physical layout or it's multiple stories. And at some point, you may either need to have additional access points or use a mesh Wi-Fi system, which has multiple units connected wirelessly to each other. But at a higher level, and I know this is controversial a little bit, but my personal desire and opinion is to avoid Wi-Fi as much as possible. Wi-Fi mm. is designed for phones, uh, tablets, computers. It's not designed for real-time devices that send small amounts of data but need very high reliable connections. Sooner or later, I found most Wi-Fi devices fail softly. They'll disconnect, they'll reconnect, they'll stop working. You'll need to unplug them and plug them back in. I mean, I've seen this with HomePods. I've seen this with uh, Amazon devices, other devices, where they simply don't work unattended. You once in a while have to kick them or fiddle with them to make them work. And the more devices you have, you may have congestion on your Wi-Fi. A lot of devices only work on what's called the 2.4 gigahertz frequency. Mm. And that frequency is the oldest in the original Wi-Fi. There are actually good reasons for using that frequency. It has the longest range. Its speed is more than fast enough. And it has the lowest cost of manufacturing. But as you crowd that band in design of Wi-Fi, it doesn't have the ability to support simultaneous devices talking at the same time. So it's very quickly switching between device to device, giving them a little bit of time to talk and then going to the next device. The five gigahertz band and the newer Wi-Fi standards allow multiple devices to communicate at the same time. And it solves that problem. But most smart home devices still work on the 2.4 gigahertz. One of the things I found as well, if you've got a 2.4 gigahertz uh, smart uh, home device, is a lot of the time to set it up on the network, you'll actually have to turn off the 5 gigahertz network because uh, the the device literally just won't and can't connect to Wi-Fi because there's a 5 gigahertz network. Um, and usually when that happens, I find that uh, the result is actually that when the 5 gigahertz comes back on, uh, the device seems to work fine, but it will randomly just be periodically flaky. Uh, whereas with my my Zigbee devices in particular, so they're they're you know uh, on a different network, they are rock solid. They work fine. The only time they don't work is uh, you know when I don't have a battery left in them if they're if they're a battery powered device, um, or the, uh, the very occasional time that smart plug's not working. Why is it not working? Because it was unplugged from the wall. 
hmm, I need to have another word with my dad about that. Um, but, you know, I, I found Zigbee not to have problems, you know, with, with that sort of thing, whereas Wi-Fi devices, you're trying to cram so many things onto a network and you still want to be able to stream Netflix or Apple TV and, and so on. It, it It's kind of just asking for trouble, isn't it? Yes, but I, I don't think it's the case of the bandwidth or the network itself. It's the design of the devices and the software and the firmware. Mm. You'll note most new devices now use Bluetooth for initial setup, and that bypasses the problematic firmware and software issues with getting confused by a 5 gigahertz band versus a 2 gigahertz band. But one thing to keep in mind, the frequency of the network, Wi-Fi 2.4 gigahertz is the same physical frequency as Bluetooth devices, that's speakers, headphones, AirPods, etc., and also thread devices. The thread radios, the new, quote-unquote, new wireless standard also runs on 2.4 gigahertz. So physical interference is possible with all of those devices. And there's one other very common kitchen appliance that works on 2.4 gigahertz. And that's the microwave oven. If you've ever used yeah. your earphones in the kitchen and you turn on the microwave oven, suddenly all your audio drops out. So the reason Zigbee that you mentioned and there are other standards, the uh, Z-Wave is still in use, although some people feel it may be dying, and Lutron and others, they use frequencies of the radio that are very different than Wi-Fi. So it's sort of at a physical level. It's like driving a car on the freeway. If you have a lane that's reserved for you to drive in, no matter whether you're going fast or slow, you're not going to get interference from the other lanes of traffic. So at a physical radio transmission and reflection level, using non-Wi-Fi for any of your smart devices, and by smart devices, I'm referring to low-power, low-data devices, sensors, switches, things like that, you're avoiding potential interference from the beginning. So rather than designing around it and optimizing your Wi-Fi radios and being very careful of overloading the channels or not, if you have nothing that can interfere in the first place, you're far ahead. And therefore, I would strongly recommend using Zigbee devices or other proprietary radios, even though that's a dirty word, than using Wi-Fi for these sensors and general IoT devices. And I can read Rose's mind. She's thinking, that's exactly what I've been preaching on this show, gang. You know, mm -hmm. get, yeah. get your, even though, you know, you look at it, you're like, I got to get another Ethernet cable and I got another little box. Uh, at the end of the day, when it comes to this home automation stuff, you are making life easier. I, I was just thinking, you know, I've got like my office lights. I've got three in there. I've got three in the bedroom. Uh, I've got uh, one in the hallway, uh, five in the living room, one in the kitchen. All of those are connected to my Zigbee network, which is one dongle that's plugged in and that's it, um, you know. But if I had all of those connected to the Wi-Fi, then I would be very dependent on not just my Wi-Fi, but also my neighbor's Wi-Fi. Because if my neighbor's Wi-Fi decides that it's going to hop on the same channel as my Wi-Fi, I then have to go and change my Wi-Fi channel and stuff like that. And if you're thinking, oh my God, that sounds like gobbledygook, don't get a, don't get Wi-Fi connected devices because <laughs> you'll regret it at some point when when somebody's Wi-Fi interferes with your Wi-Fi or something somewhere collides. It's, it's not fun. Wired is always the best. 
because if you wire something, no one else can interfere with it. Any wireless device, theoretically, someone else, not you, a neighbor or a in a in a high-rise building, if you're right next door to another apartment, there may be some bleed over of, of radio signals. So the ideal from a reliability point of view, but not from a cost and installation, is wired. I, I still recommend wired shades, wired door sensors, but that's not practical in many situations. And I understand that and I do that myself. So at least get your sensors and other devices onto Zigbee or something else. And you'll be solving your problems from the beginning rather than troubleshooting them afterwards. Mm. Yeah. Setting yourself up for an easier success is always a win. So if if people are listening, um, because I know this is something I think about sometimes, it's like, how often should we be updating our Wi-Fi? Because the technology does continue to improve. Like for me, uh, buying a mesh, a mesh network of routers dramatically improved the Wi-Fi performance in my house. Um, what do you? What's your advice to people on those subjects? With Wi-Fi, there's really been a few evolutions. The original Wi-Fi was 2.4 gigahertz. The next big improvement was the introduction of five gigahertz band, which allowed streaming video, streaming cameras, high bandwidth devices, laptops, computers even drive arrays to work with enough throughput to be not just usable, but comfortably used. The third breakthrough was mesh for the consumer. The ability to have multiple Wi-Fi radios that give you the coverage rather than trying to have one. These, you know, you saw those Wi-Fi units with 10 antennas sticking out. They look like spiders on their backs or tarantulas. It it just, you're, you're, you're fighting physics. So, that's been the last major breakthrough. Beyond that have been incremental improvements in speed and capacity. So I would recommend buy what you need, but don't buy the latest and greatest, which is overpriced. Wi-Fi 6 primarily was about device density, having a lot more devices in the same area. And what folks don't realize is that density is for stadiums, movie theaters, businesses, places that want hundreds or thousands of people on Wi-Fi at the same time. The Wi-Fi 6 density was not for homes. It did bring higher speed, potentially higher speed up to maybe a gigabit or close to it. So the newest iPhones and tablets could get more raw speed, but it's speed that is limited by the other end. When you're talking Mm -hmm. to Netflix, when you're doing Zoom calls, you don't get the maximum speed end-to-end. You're restricted by the servers, the the shared equipment, the shared internet in between. So that theoretical spec speed is not achieved a lot of the time. So in practicality, even Wi-Fi 5 is more than acceptable with our modern devices. So if we look at the last thing coming now, Wi-Fi 7. Wi-Fi 7 is extremely expensive today. It's not yet standard. The companies have rushed products to market that are pre-standard. They're designed to meet the standard, but they're not able to put the standard label on the box because the testing hasn't been finished. Hopefully, it'll be a firmware change or a minor software update, but you cannot buy a Wi-Fi 7 certified 
product today. So unless you're completely bleeding edge and you want that over one gigabit speed that it can deliver, I would say it's it's not yet ready for normal people to use, average people to use. The other challenge of Wi-Fi 7 is to get that speed and to get that speed on more than one device, you have to upgrade your router and your internet. If you mm. don't have a one gigabit internet connection and you don't have a router device, the device that connects between your internet line and your home that can do that kind of speed and throughput for more than one device, you're not going to get that benefit. No, I mean, if you've got something like a NAS at home where you've got, you know, all of the the, the films and, and shows that you've ripped off of DVD over the years, assuming, of course, that's legal where you are, then, you know, you can, you can stream that across your home, uh, you know, at a gigabit. But even so, you're probably not going to actually see that on the device at the other end. And let's face it, if it's a TV, how often does the TV move around your house? Could you maybe run an Ethernet cable there and get the same benefit for $10 instead of, you know, however much it's going to cost to replace your whole home network? I mean, if you're just using like a a, a network provider uh, provided router from six years ago, yeah, you probably want to look at upgrading your your home internet or Wi-Fi network. But if you've got, you know, decent stuff, you know, Eros from a year or two ago, you don't need to be rushing to upgrade things. Um, you know, there's there's not really a lot of point um, because within your home, it's probably actually realistically going to introduce more problems than it solves because, you know, you're going to have to either configure your network to be exactly the same as it was before and still repair some devices that are doing things right. Um, or you're going to have to connect everything to a whole new Wi-Fi network. And that's work that most people don't want to do. Well, well I'm going to tell people to spend money. Uh, I say uh, if you don't have a mesh network, you should look into it. Because it was shocking to me how much better. Like even like, you know, because of the nature of mesh networking, remote areas of the house just suddenly had solid and reliable Wi-Fi. Like I, back in the day when they were doing a lot more throttling at AT&T, I remember a couple months we were, our, our AT&T was getting throttled and on our phones. And I'm, I couldn't understand why until I realized my kids were upstairs watching Netflix off the cellular network because they just could never get a Wi-Fi, and then they just switched it over. And I'm like, we used all our data in two days, you know? And so, but that doesn't happen anymore with, with these networks. Not only do I get it throughout the house, I get it in the backyard. I get it, like, I've got some Wi-Fi cameras um, for uh, the Eufy system, and they need a Wi-Fi signal, and they work in the front yard. It just, it's all like it was a magic cure for me in terms of it. And, and Robert talked about how that was a big, jump but i don't think everybody has got on board with mesh networks yet and i think anyone you buy at this point is probably going to be an improvement for you yeah definitely would recommend anyone that still has a single wi-fi unit in their house and they're having coverage problems or performance problems look at any of the popular consumer mesh wi-fi solutions it's plug and play as much as it can be it's affordable there are there are good brands at the hundred dollar a unit price level, not five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, and it's it's pretty much a no brainer if you need to get your Wi Fi under control. But I would not jump to the higher end, fancier products unless you want them or you need them or you're willing to pay for them. 
but they're not a necessity. No, no. The only thing is, is if you've got a smart home Wi-Fi device that's acting a bit flaky, but otherwise you think your network is absolutely fine, uh, I'm going to say blame the network first. Don't don't blame the network last. If you've got a if you've got a Wi-Fi device that's in HomeKit and sometimes it's not responding, it's probably going to be your network. It's the one of the most common problems I see in just straight up HomeKit is actually you know the it's the network that everything's connecting through, um, and uh, yeah, moving some some things around if you do have multiple routers or upgrading to a mesh network is probably going to fix that for that device. And uh, next time you know better and you can get Zigbee. But, uh, you know, you're still going to want all your devices to connect really well wherever you are in your home. I would say slightly differently along those lines. Instead of buying new Wi-Fi equipment, replace those smart home devices with non-Wi-Fi devices. Get some Zigbee or get some Lutron or or whatever, uh, Philips Hue for Zigbee lights. Put your budget into getting all your home kit or smart home devices off Wi-Fi as much as possible. Yeah, and that's that's such an easy call. I mean, Rose and I talk about Acara, I feel like every episode, but get an Acara hub and the Acara sensors and devices are not that expensive. I mean, it's shocking how reliable they are for how little they cost. Yeah. And that brings up a, a related point is besides the uh, fear or the reluctance to buy a so-called hub device to connect all these devices, some people that still have a small internet router with only four ports on the back and they don't have the capacity those four ports are used. I, I just want to remind people, you can buy a simple, dumb Ethernet switch, which is a little box that fits in the palm of your hand and it will convert one Ethernet port into four or eight more ports. These boxes are $10, $20, $30 at the most. And they give you many extra ports. So don't let the lack of physical connection on your router or existing network device stop you from adding hubs. Yeah, if I that's the only thing blocking it. About like a 16 switch, um, what do you call it? A, sw- a 16 port switch and a bag of six inch uh, Ethernet cables. And I think the whole thing was like $60 for the whole whole enchilada and now anytime i have another thing show up in the house i just stick it in and also keep in mind that ethernet is is like electricity it's like water it's everywhere wherever you have a plug in your house you can plug in a hub it doesn't all have to be 10 feet away or five feet away from your main point of entry where your router and internet comes in so you might find in your office or in a bedroom is a more convenient place and a better place for these other hubs to be installed if you have Ethernet going to a few places in your house. All right, Robert, where now you are so plugged into this stuff, where do you think we're going to be with the general trend in a year or two with Matter and some of these home kit innovations we're starting to see today? Well, I would like to think that Matter will continue to improve and we'll get to the point that Every device will have a matter sticker on it, and it won't be a confusion factor when you're buying something new. It'll plug in, it'll work, you'll get a level of capability, and you'll only have to jump to third-party apps or third-party controllers or hubs if you want to do much more advanced, specialized work, firstly. 
Secondly, and this is kind of the bigger thing in my industry of the custom and mid-range systems, I hope Matter lights a fire under the traditional product line. A lot of the existing systems are just way overpriced for what they do, but more importantly, they're clunky. Their technology is still 1980s, 1990s. There's no reason for them to be so far behind other than having captive customers and captive dealers. We do see the classic ring doorbell encroaching and dealers and systems saying, okay, we'll support ring. But with hundreds and thousands of devices supporting matter, it's simply going to be a matter of time before these Mm -hmm. bigger systems will have to embrace matter devices and at least accommodate them which they do not do today at all, even with HomeKit or Google or Amazon products. They're very difficult to connect into larger systems. So I hope that will change by the force of the consumer. Well, Robert, I appreciate you coming in today. It's always great having you on the show and catching up with uh, automation in general and trends in the business. Uh, Gang, if you're interested in getting any help with Robert, we're going to put his contact information in the notes to the show. You You can reach out to him. And uh, I guess we're going to wrap it up there. We are the Automators Podcast. You can find us at relay.fm slash automators. Robert, where do people go to find you? Well, I've started a YouTube channel to provide more educational information. So you can go there. It's at do it for me solutions, all one word. And of course, everything else is based on my website, www.doitforme.solutions. All my contacts and social links are there also. All right. We want to thank our sponsors today, LinkedIn Talent Solutions, ExpressVPN, and Vitaly. If you want to check in on the forums, you can find them over at talk.automators.fm. And we'll see you next time.